Our Father in heaven, we come in Jesus' name. And we seek to come in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to worship you. For God, you said that if we come, we must worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you that we could sing your praise today. You are worthy of all of our praise. And we thank you that through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can come and call you Father. And you recognizing us as your own adopted children in Christ. And you know how needful we are, Father, of your continuous grace and care and love in our lives. How much, Lord, we need your word to be that lamp unto our feet, that light unto our path as we live in this dark world. How much we need you, Lord God. We pray that during this time as we look into your word, that your Holy Spirit would move among us, illuminating our minds and hearts, reaching with your word to the depths of our souls, and drawing us to a closer walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many things in life that appear to be one thing, but in reality, they are another. The errors of appearances can be found in so many different ways. They can be found when we're looking at photos such as a, a reflection on, on glass, um, that in the picture it looks like a planet that is being viewed in the sky. Or when somebody takes a picture of frozen puddles on the ground, and there were a lot of them this winter, and it appears at first look as an aerial picture taken from a plane window. We see this also in politics, especially with the recent bills. You know, those ones that are entitled the Equality Act and For the People's Act. Both have been alleged to be um, laws that are fair and equal. There's no prejudice in them. But are they what they actually appear to be? I have a couple articles here. One that deals with the Equality Act. And of course, for those who may not know about it, you should if you're listening to the news. This is a, a sort of an, an amendment of an earlier act um, that indeed is uh, reinforcing, if you will, civil rights by prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation 
and gender identity. And you think that these equality acts are going to be good for our nation, but they're not. In fact, in this article that has been placed on the webpage of Pennsylvania Family Institute gives us an account of how women's rights and religious freedom are going to be taken away by the Equalities Act in this way, especially directing it towards women, because they give us an account of a young lady going to high school who is uh, subjugated to this type of thinking in this bill, and what happens to her is that her bodily privacy was violated when a biological male at her high school was allowed to use the girls' restrooms and locker rooms. Her name is Alexis. She goes to Boyertown High School, and her, along with five other students, were being represented by the Independence Law Center with a lawsuit that was unfortunately not taken to the Supreme Court. And one of the senior fellows, if you will, of this Independence Law Center, Jeremy Samick, says this, a girl's privacy doesn't spring into existence or cease to exist based on what a boy thinks about his gender. These kinds of violations against girls' safety and privacy will only be more and more prevalent across our country if the so-called Equality Act is passed. Something that appears to be giving non-discrimination, and yet it is discriminating against the very gender that God has established in the creation of man, of male and female. The second one, from a political standpoint, that appears, if you will, to be, if you will, the people's act its intention is to indeed expand the voting rights and voter integrity. But it's also known as H.R. 1. And in the same group, uh, Pennsylvania Family Institute, they write this. Don't let H.R. 1, the name entitled For the People's Act, fool you. This bill could increase the likelihood of election fraud and nationalize voter laws, taking away the power from the states. It would also publicly disclose the personal information of supporters of groups like ours to the public and open up for us the opposition from those groups who stand against life and the family. 
things don't always appear as the way in which they're presented. There's a third way in which this happens, and that's in our culture. You know, the movements of advocating the right to choose life or the right to life or the right to choose. <laughs> the right to choose is based on the woman's choice to give birth to a child she's pregnant with or to abort that child in her womb. It coincides with another group. It talks about the right to self-identity. It's based on maxims that come from critical theory and cultural Marxism, which espouses a freedom to what they declare are a oppressed people, that they want to free them from the oppression that they're being victimized by because of the biblical norms of our morality that our society has been running on. These things are just some of the ways in which what the way things appear are not what they actually are. It happens also in nature. This winter has been a tough one, hasn't it? Bitterly cold for many of us. Some of you actually enjoy it. See me later. But particularly for people that are living in the southern states where they were gripped with this cold and snow as never before. And as we do move from this freezing cold uh, to a more spring-like temperatures, we're all left wondering if indeed the plants that we have to beautify our houses and around the church here have survived. Right now, for the most part, most of them are still in a dormant state. They have lifeless shoots, sure, and, and limbs and, and maybe some stems, but how do we really know if they're alive? Paul, well, simple. The proof of life is when life appears, right? If no life emerges, it's time for those plants to be uprooted, right? Because they're dead. And even in national polls, national polls taken on the temperature or where our society is religiously, suggest that the majority of Americans today claim that they are evangelical Christians. But do these assessments, these assents, if you will, to evangelical Christianity provide us an accurate accounting of where people really are when it comes to true faith? Do the poll records give us the facts as they appear? The answer is no. And I think it ties in very well 
with what James is getting at here in chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. For he asks these two questions. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? The questions here that James is asking relate very well with the idea of appearance being different from reality when it comes to true faith. However, before we get into this verse and the subsequent verses further, we need to know a couple things. First, we need to examine why, indeed, there are differences, if you will, of views found in the New Testament about the evidence of true faith. Two distinct perspectives come from two inspired New Testament writers, and they both use Abraham as their example of what true faith is. The first perspective is given by the Apostle Paul, and it's found in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4, where Paul actually states very clearly that all men, all men, are condemned under the law of God, and that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Why is that? Well, Paul tells us why in verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And next, Paul explains that a sinner is justified by God, by God's grace, through the redemption which is found only in Christ Jesus. And then he concludes this in verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In other words, Paul is saying here that he's opposed, if you will, to this idea that by the works of the law, a man, a sinner, can be justified before God. And to prove his claim, Paul cites Abraham being justified by God on the basis of faith, not by works. For in Romans chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me, in Romans chapter 4, and verses 2 through 8, we actually read this. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Quoting Genesis 3.15. And then he goes on and he says this. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. 
but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account. But as we saw in James here in chapter 2, it's very clear that James's questions and his conclusions here seem to conflict with what Paul is saying. But let me say to you, they do not. James' teaching here in James chapter 2 in verse 17, he says this, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And then he makes this argument. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then lo and behold, in verses 21 through 23, James uses Abraham as his proof, as his example of this truth. He says there in verses 21 through 23, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 3.15. And he adds this, and he was called the friend of God. And then James makes this solid statement here in verse 24. He concludes and he says this, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, how do we reconcile this? If we are to insert James's questions into Paul's teachings in Romans, we can answer James' questions by saying that it, faith is enough, right? Faith is enough. But there's a problem, and the problem is this. We cannot take James's questions about true faith and transfer them into what Paul is teaching on faith. Why? Well, before I answer that question, let me remind you about the correlations between these two men. Yes, it is true that both inspired men and writers are tackling the same topic of true faith. They both use Abraham as the example of what is true faith. But both of them are doing it from two distinct vantage points. 
You see, Paul's focus and what he is arguing in Romans 3 and 4 is that a person, what a person needs before conversion. Whereas James's focus is on what a person needs after conversion. Paul's concern is how a sinner is justified before God. He is justified by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, plus nothing. James' concern is that believers in Christ need to be living out their faith. True faith is a living faith. It is following the Lord. It is doing His will. For a faith not lived out is no faith at all. It is dead. It is useless. Well, what does this living faith not do? Well, I think James points it out here in verses 15 and 16. It will not act this way to a brother or sister who has needs. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What does then true living faith do? Well, may I suggest to you that we can find it in the Old Testament passage there in Isaiah chapter 58. Because in Isaiah, the prophet is correcting the people of God of what true worship is, and what fasting before the Lord is. And he tells them very quickly that they need to be this is the fast that God desires to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to unband the, of the yoke, um, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, to bring in the homeless poor, to feed the hungry, to exercise your faith in such a way that people can see the love of God in your heart for their conditions as well as to share the gospel with them, just as Phil and Pratiksha was talking about on their time on Sunday school. But he says something else here that I think we lose sight of today. He talks about the Sabbath, verse 13. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, detesting your own ways from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. Then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." This time that we've been living in these COVID restrictions have seriously impacted the church of Jesus Christ in our country. Now that we're coming on the backside, 
I want to encourage us to come back and to keep the Sabbath day. I want to encourage you to realize that we should not be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. You see, somebody who's merely, and I think this is what uh, James is getting at here, a person who says that they have faith can simply be an outward profession of faith. But to do the works of faith stems from an inward possession of true faith which God has planted in our lives through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And it is the same Holy Spirit that now indwells us as believers upon our conversion. He seals us unto the day of redemption. He is spiritually gifting us to bear fruit for God. And He is with us and empowering us forever. To show that there's no conflict between what Paul and James is talking about, I'd like to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Because in many respects, Ephesians 2, where Paul is writing, he's showing both sides of this coin of true faith. Very familiar passage to all of us. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves... It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 3, 4. Then it says this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. James 2. Simon Kistemacher, as he's quoting from, uh, in his commentary on this passage, says this, Faith in God through Jesus Christ is a certainty that flows from our hearts, emanates from our minds, and translates into deeds. That's why both Paul and James can quote Genesis 3.15 about the life of Abraham. He believed God. It was reckoned unto him as righteousness. Because in James's mind, that truth, that reality, that relationship that was true of Abraham at the point in time when it was first spoken was proved. It was perfected by his life, living out faith in offering up his son, Isaac. Well, we need to conclude. James says here in verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. 
And James is saying that just as the body cannot live and exist without its spirit, because when the spirit departs, it means that the body is dead. The body has no more life apart from the spirit. So faith, if it has no works, is dead. Because true faith, the living faith, will produce works of faith. The other thing that I think we can take from this passage is this. If there are no good works being produced from a person's life who has made a profession of faith, we can say there has been no true faith that has justified that person before God. Isn't that the mark, if you will, of what John the Baptist was telling the religious leaders of his own day? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And even our Lord Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, you will know them by their fruit. The mere profession of faith is not enough. For genuine faith is alive. It's producing practical works of holiness in the life of the one it possesses. And just as the body is lifeless apart from the spirit, so faith is dead if it does not produce holy living and godly deeds. Let us be a people who so follow the Lord in an active and living faith so that by doing so, we can shine as lights in this world. Let our light so shine before men so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Amen.